Gabriel Levinson. Calvin Marty. Holy shit. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Let me, uh, I got to turn off the heat here. Oh, no problem. Otherwise, it'll be overwhelming. Well, don't freeze to death just for the sake of quality audio. (laughs) Um, That's the only reason to freeze to death, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) This is Irregular People. My name is Calvin Marty, and I'd like to introduce you to Gabriel Levinson, founder of Anti-Book Club, a very small independent publishing house, or rather apartment. Gabriel and I went to college together for a couple of years, and we were close friends until eventually sort of drifting apart, as you do, and into our separate lives. Gabe and I spoke for a long time, and there's so much good stuff here that I decided to break this up into two parts. I wanted to have Gabriel on for a couple of reasons. One, Gabriel is the person who published Practical Blasphemy, the incredible book by LJT that's the center of episode three of the podcast. Without him, it's possible that such an essential addition to American literature would never have seen the light of day. Two, Gabriel has dedicated his life to publishing what he considers to be important works that might otherwise never find a publishing home. For many years, Anti-Book Club was just him, one guy, scraping together enough money to publish one book at a time. And it's still pretty much the same, except that now he has a little help. In this part one of The Degenerates, we talk about the beginnings of Anti-Book Club, working for Penguin Random House, money and morals, what it's like to publish work as a tiny indie press, some of the issues with trying to survive as an artist in America, Anti-Book Club's new book, The Hipsters by Terry Southern, publishing translated works, and the sale of Gabriel's personal collections to fund his projects. And, of course, much more. Gabriel lives in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, so right right on the edge of, the, of Prospect Park. In an apartment that doubles as the home of Anti-Book Club. One of the things I love about Anti is that when you order a book directly from them, you can be sure that the book you ordered is being hand-packed and shipped by Gabriel himself. Gabriel doesn't make a living from publishing the books he publishes, the books about which he cares so deeply. He still has to have what he calls a day job. So for my day job, I currently work uh, at um, Penguin Random House as a uh, production editor. Uh, So that means that I'm seeing a manuscript through from like a Word document up until it, it gets released into a printed book form. So I'm in charge of the copy editing, the proofreading, indexing, keeping things on track between departments and ushering it around and catching typos is the big thing, of course. Um, and uh, I don't personally do all the copy editing, proofreading. I'm, I'm managing freelancers for that. Um, and then just keeping things moving forward between editors and authors and freelancers and production teams and design teams. So, and it's, it's fine, you know, it's fine. But it's, uh, you know, I I still call it a day job because this is, you know, uh, I've held down many day jobs. This is the first one I've held down that is relevant to what I love to do. Um, So, like, it could arguably be like, oh, you found your career path. It's like, no, it's it's uh, it's it's still um, it's still a day job. I work on books that never in a million years would I ever have any interest in. Whereas with Anti Book Club. Every single book is something I'm fascinated by. Yeah. Oh, that's the curse of one of my least favorite curses of being alive. Yeah. <laughs> Capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, I, my, I guess career in publishing with capital P um, probably start, started uh, when I first moved to New York um, with Abrams Books, and they're an art book publisher. Um, and I started there as a managing editor, um, and it was there for a few years. And then I, um, in that time I started teaching a course at NYU for their publishing program. I was teaching a course pretty much on what I do, which is copy editing, proofreading, and fact checking. Mm. Um, and I think that helped kind of, uh, boost my resume enough to, to when it, when, uh, a production editor position became available at Penguin Random House, um, you know, I think that helped get me in the door. So then I transferred over there. So I'm going into my, I don't know, I think third, or I'm in my third year. I don't know, third or fourth year now at, at uh, Random House. Okay. Yeah. As a big reader and a closeted writer, um, books are still magic to me. 
You know uh-huh. what I mean? And uh, so I'm just really curious about that industry. I obviously want to talk about you and Anti Book Club, but I'm just curious, you know, yeah. about the the process. So do you, I mean, is it just, does it feel like just churning shit out? Um, I think, you know, the, certainly the indie publisher side of me says yes. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff that, or I should say, even as a, just as a reader, Mm. um, it seems like it, but of course, you know, my interests aren't the only interests for the market. So there's, I I have to deal with a lot of books that I, I would never in a million years pick up off the shelf. That doesn't mean those books don't have value to other readers. So, you know, I work on, I think like eight different imprints and each imprint under a publishing house is tailored to a specific audience. So mm. maybe one imprint is just dealing with like historical, you know, uh, biographies, you know, sure. uh, or primarily. And then there's another one that's known for literary fiction. Perhaps there's another that's more pop culture oriented. Mm. So I, I really do, the books I work on really run the gamut in, in style or genre. And a majority of them personally are meaningless to me, but they sell. There's clearly audiences for them. And, you know, the nice thing about my position is that I don't have to like the books. My job is very specific. Yeah. I have to make sure that the book is the best it can be for its audience. Right. So it isn't about my personal interest for my day job. It's about just making sure whether or not I agree with the content of the book, because I also have to deal with uh, right-wing books, too, that I have to work on. And um, so, you know, it, there's there's danger to working with a behemoth, Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm working with a lot of people who the reason they have the positions they have are because they don't care about what they're doing to the world with their work. They, they, mm. they're, they're looking out for the bottom line, which is their job. So they look yeah. for the books that sell and they know certain books can sell even if, and it doesn't even mean that these higher up people who are signing on what I would consider reprehensible books. And I don't just mean books I'm not interested. I mean, books that are doing damage to our society through the ideas that they, they put out and are being funded. Um, and and I, arguably the people who are signing on those books are just doing their job as well. Um, but, you know, uh, what, you know, and capitalism certainly has never been about morals. And I think it's a joke anytime someone tries to make it about that. It's like, really? That's, that's what you, you know, that's not what this is. <laughs> like, that's not how this works. It's never, and it never will be. I don't care. I don't care why. I think there's some tax designation now that companies can do where they, their purpose is a good purpose or something like that for the world. And, um, and so it's capitalism with a, with a moral guiding light or something essentially. And it's like, okay. And maybe you believe it when you say that, but fuck you. Like it's just what I think is good for the world. You know, someone else thinks is fucking horrible. So, right. Well, you know, and how can, you know, how do churches not have to pay taxes and, and then all these, the, the horrors that they've unleashed upon their people for decades and decades, if not centuries, um, seems to not matter at all. <laughs> Just, you know, so obviously, you know, money and morals, um, it's a joke when people try to mix them, in my opinion. But um, the danger, the other, the flip side, though, of actually caring about the books you bring on and not just looking at the bottom line is something like anti-book club. Uh, and I've every decision I've made for the book club has been principled, and I've run it kind of the way I believe something should run. And I and I'm LLC. I'm not I'm not pretending to be a B corp or LC three. I think is another one, another yeah. designation. And like, you know, uh, it's 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 I, I'm I'm looking for profit. I want profit. I need profit. And that's because that money goes back into making more books on my end. And you know, it's really as simple as that. But I'm not trying to pull the wool. You know, it's capitalism. Yeah. So have your, um, since we're on it, have have you and or um, the authors whose work you've published made any money on, on any of the books? I, uh, I mean, my authors certainly get paid. Um, I, and I, and I, you know, they get advances. They certainly don't get advances on the level of the likes of my day job employer um, sure. is, is able to pay um, and they know that though. I mean, going into it, of course, like there's no, there's no bullshitting when I, when I sign on an author or, or make a, a proposal to an author, um, they know exactly what they're getting. So, hmm. uh, do they get paid? I mean, <laughs> 
you, you, you inadvertently brought up something in that it's a very common thing for publishers to not pay their authors. Um, really? It's a very, they're very, very slick uh, publishers out there where mm. they don't necessarily follow through on their contract or they don't follow through until they're berated enough or threatened. Wow. Um, and, you know, uh, I could bring, there's actually a, uh, Chicago press that folded uh, recently as in the last couple of years. And they were called out by their authors for not, not being paid their royalties um, when they were due. And the thing is this, like there isn't enough income on my end for me to withhold it from my authors. (laughs) Like I can't even play that game. It would be stupid. So are, are they getting money that does anything for their lives from me? No, but are they getting their checks when they're told their checks will come? Absolutely. Yeah. Because the only thing I have, the only thing I have is credibility. Yeah. And the moment I screw that over, I've got nothing. So, you know, it's, it's, is it impressive to get signed on with me? No, you're not going to get your name in lights. You're maybe going to get some sales, but you're not going to get famous. Um, but yeah. you are going to get what I tell you, what you signed for, you know, right, and, it's, right. and you're not going to get lied to about that stuff. So, so this ties back in with why I went on this tangent about making decisions based on principle the problem of running a business uh based on principled decisions is is obscurity because i'm not playing games the way i should be to help market my titles or to help boost visibility of my authors whatever it may be that i'm not doing that others are doing yeah um, it, it's forever keeping us uh, completely unknown. And I say that, which is, is a bummer, but then think of the authors I've got who've signed on with me. They know this shit and yeah. they still sign on. Like, so it blows me away and it makes me feel like, you know, even though I don't have the sales that I wish these, that these books damn well deserve. Oh, yeah. um, they don't have those sales, but the fact that these authors believe in what I'm doing with Anti-Book Club enough to put their name on it and risk their own reputations by being, like that's what motivates me to keep doing this. Yeah. Uh, and I've frequently been on the verge of, I think I have to end this. Because financially it's 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 just uh, a joke. <laughs> um, I, one of my books definitely sold very well. Um, it was a graphic novel I published called The End of the World by Don Hertzfeld. Hmm. And it did very, very well financially. Um, and my author got paid, Don got, um, definitely got paid very well from that, I would argue. Uh, didn't get much of an advance, but damn, he got a massive cut of the sales and the sales were strong. Mm. And I think, you know, that's, I personally believe that, that advances shouldn't be insane. I think make them on the lower end. Your authors earn out the advance faster when they get paid less. And then they start earning from the sales. And to me, that, that compels them to help sell the book because they're getting checks. Um, so, you know, the, and the other thing is the end of the world got enough visibility that Random House, um, poached it and reprinted it themselves just last year. Wow. So like, you know, I naively, and, and every day that I keep doing this, I realize how naive I am more and more, even when things get unveiled. But my, my naivete moving into this, uh, was that, oh, you know, if I do enough good work, eventually, you know, bigger publishing houses will recognize it and they'll either sign me on as an editor mm. or they'll sign or they'll sign anti-book club on as an imprint um, because I, I'm proof of concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's what you just said and it's what actually happened to me. They wait until you've got a hit or what you would hope is a hit um, and they, they just take that. They let you take the financial risk uh, even though they're the ones who have the money to burn, right? Right. Um, but they let me take the financial risk. And then when it proves itself, they grab that book and they make the money from that book rather than like, I'm the reason that book came into being uh, along with the author. Of course, it's right. not just me. But I mean, I'm the one who believed in it and put all the money into it and and and, and along with the author helped sell the book. Um, and how are you cutting me out of this? You know, how do you not realize this isn't just the book that sells it? Um, but that's they when they've got endless money, they don't have to think about that. You know? Right. So, so the, so the, you know, random house or whomever offers the author just a, a better deal after your, your contract expires or, or, or they just 
you know, more money and. Yeah. I mean, it certainly depends on, of course, the terms of your contract and with, with the terms of the contract that, that I did with, with Don for the graphic novel, it was certainly, it was early, it was very early on in anti-book club and it was a, a more loose terms thing where he did have complete rights to take it elsewhere if he decided mm. to. So, you know, that, that was fine. That's, that was fine. That was just how we had it work out in, in particular. Um, as far as why he actually would take it somewhere else or why an author would take it somewhere else, not just him, um, is yeah, of course, more money. And of course, your name in lights. I yeah, mean, how could you is, not as a right. struggling author, how could you not be like, like, listen, I got to go where I can get my name out exactly. there and get, make more money and maybe stop working whatever shit job I'm working or whatever. Exactly. So I, I don't begrudge any of my authors for going to, to the place that's writing, you know, the, the bigger checks and is able to market their book and get it prominent and get them read. I mean, in the end, all I care about is these books being read. Well, right. And that's so, what I was going to say. It yeah. seems like the, the thing you're trying to do, that is a form of you doing it, I guess, if you, if you want to try mm-hmm. to find the silver lining, which is you bring this, this work to light when no one else will. And if you hadn't done that, right, you know, Random House or whomever would, would never have even known to pick it up or, or wouldn't have, you know, like you said, wouldn't take the risk or whatever. So right. your goals are still happening. It just seems like impossible for you to <laughs> make a full living off. Well, that's the thing, right? Like I'm not a charity house and I'm, and, right. and I really, I really don't like it when people call it a passion project. Like, yeah, I'm passionate about, of course I'm passionate about it. And I'm, I'm working my nights and weekends on this. Right. Um, so I, I care about it enough to do that, but that's only because of the, of the, uh, rigors of capitalism that are forcing me to, to use my nights and weekends and to not have a social life, you know, when we could still have a social life. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm passionate about it, but I damn well want to make money off of this. And I want my authors to make money off of this. Yeah. And I don't want them to even be considering going to another house. Cause I want them to be happy about being with mine and feel that their work is getting read. So while it, it feels good that they are able to go elsewhere after after anti-book club, there is potential, and one of our books has proven that. Um, I do resent that that's the situation that I'm being forced in, because the truth is, is how about you motherfuckers fund me? You have the money. I'm clearly acquiring titles that have value in the world, and they're they're selling. It's it's just it's just silly um, to to play this game this way. But you know, I, I entered into this without a business plan. And I didn't know I was going to keep doing it, let alone be talking to you 10 years later. So let's talk about that. Let's talk um, the beginning. How did Anti-Book Club get started? How did you, how and why? It was, there's, I, I've, I think I've got a couple of origin stories, but I think they, they I think they, they're all of a piece. So in Chicago, um, I had a project for a few years called The Book Bike. I was at the time I was, this was in, I think 2007 and I was working um, as an associate editor for make magazine in Chicago, which is a literary magazine. They're still going strong. Mm. And uh, it was fun. I mean, the literary scene in Chicago is, I mean, it can't be beat. It's, it's just an awesome scene and it's a very supportive scene. And there were um, you know, we were going to all the events, we were hosting events and uh I kind of created the book bike, which I'll explain what it was in a moment. But I, the idea came up because I kept seeing the same faces at these events. Mm. And I kept thinking like, well, why are, why are we only doing this for each other? I mean, these were usually public events where everyone was invited and wanted, we wanted people in uh, that weren't the same people. Right. Um, but the truth is, is the same crowd just kept showing up. And I thought, well, is there a way to reach readers that aren't paying attention that aren't in the scene? Yeah. And how do we do that? And that's kind of, I came up with this book bike idea, which was a three-wheeled tricycle, um, custom built that um, kind of looked like an ice cream vendor's cart, except it was a giant wooden box on the front of it. And I would ride it around to public parks on the weekends and I would open it up. It had, it had doors in front and doors on top that would, that would open up. And they were, there were shelves on the inside and I would fill the shelves with books. And I would hang out in public parks in Chicago on the weekends, uh, mainly just in the summers, um, 
and, for obvious reasons, and uh, give every single book on that bike away. They were all just give. I just would give them away, and I did that for four years. Gave away over five thousand books single-handedly to people, and it got press. It got international press. I was featured in Reader's Digest Best of America issue. Uh, you know, like there was amazing press. I ended up on like MSNBC or CNBC. I don't know one of those. Like Tamron Hall interviewed me. That was pretty cool. Like it was fun, and it was very well received. And uh, it's actually it spawned or inspired numerous book bikes that continue to operate today throughout the world that I have nothing to do with other than they've credited me with like inspiration for why they made it. And uh, I've noticed a lot of libraries and bookstores actually adopted the book bike style after mine, but also a lot of just communities that are trying to uh, rehab a neighborhood and trying to bring families into a neighborhood. So they have a book bike go through the neighborhood and kids come out and get to get get kids books off of it and they just adapt it to their communities so it's yeah. awesome mine the one in chicago died off but uh the idea proliferated so how did you get how did um you acquire the books that you gave away originally um i wrote to every single publisher on my own bookshelf at the time and i told them what my idea i said i want to give your books away in public parks send me anything you want anything you want people to be reading i'll put it in their hands and I didn't know if anything was going to come of that. And then suddenly a box arrived on my doorstep from someone and then more boxes and more. And we're talking about from anywhere as small as, um, you know, Dark Horse Comics or McSweeney's mm-hmm. to, uh, to as large or even smaller than that, but McSweeney's was a little small. Yeah. They were small back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then to as big as of course, Random House. Um, and they were all donating boxes of books. And it was awesome. So in the beginning, it was just that. And then it got more popular, more press. People started donating books from home. Hmm. But then I started losing quality control. Like, I think I've said it before, like, I, you know, I didn't get into this to give away diabetes for dummies, which has its place and it's useful for people. But that's not what Book Bike was for me. I wanted fiction and literature. Right. I wanted to engage people who weren't thinking about books that you could get lost in or you could really learn from. I don't, I, how-to books weren't necessarily... What, what I wanted to. So because of that, that's when I turned to a financial donation model. I was getting so much attention worldwide. So I opened it up to money. People donated. I had a blog and I, I cataloged to the penny where every single bit of money that was donated, where I, where I spent it, which mm. bookstores I spent it at, which books I bought at those stores. So the idea then became a full circle thing. I was promoting independent local bookstores putting money into them. So it was symbiotic. And I was still giving away all the books to anyone who wanted them if they came across the bike. And unfortunately, and this long, long uh, uh, explanation leads into the kernel of anti-book club was I started getting burned out on this because I couldn't get past the local boy does good image that had been built, which was a fine image and it was getting people attention. But People weren't recognizing that I was putting money into the, the, the bookstore system, that I was mm. really like doing more than just giving away books. And I couldn't get the press to recognize that, mm. that there was more happening here that deserved recognition. And it was frustrating. And I realized, you know what, like if I'm frustrated at this thing, it's time to move on to something else. Mm. And I thought, well, I love sharing books with people. And how can I keep doing that? And that's when the kernel of the idea of maybe I could start making books. Um, cause I, I, I had a lot of author friends and, 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 and I, I don't have, hesitate to ask people to contribute and, you know, maybe there's something there. Hmm. So that's one of the origins of anti-book club. The other one actually is connected to the graphic novel, The End of the World by Don Hurston. Don and I, I, in a former life, I used to produce events, live events with animators and artists. And, um, I, uh, before I was doing publishing, Don Herzfeld and I were doing cross-country tours of his work when I was his tour manager and booking. Um, and, you know, from our work together and, and our friendship, you know, he had hinted that he had this, like, bunch of post-it notes that he had been drawing on and kind of assembling somewhat of a story, but he didn't know what, hmm. and he didn't really know if there was anything. He had published a couple spreads of it in a, in a comics collection, but hadn't done anything with it since then. And I was like, oh, man, this sounds awesome. You got to make this a book. And, you know, he kind of got interested a little more. He started working on it a little more. And I asked him, you know, look, I don't know how to be an agent, but can I 
try to get this sold to a publisher for you? Like, can we, you know, why not? And he was like, sure, let's see what happens. I took it around to all the big names you can imagine, Drawn and Quarterly, um, um, Fantagraphics, and everyone in between. Um, and I couldn't get anyone to bite. No one was, at the time, interested in it. And, I, you know, I can't say why, but around that time when I was getting frustrated at trying to represent this book that I believed in, uh, that's when this kernel of the idea of starting my own publishing house was happening from getting burned out on, on the book bike thing. And then I was like, well, shit. And I went to Don. I was like, what if I publish this? Like, I, I've got this idea. I want to start publishing books anyway. And you know I love what you're doing. And why don't we do that? And so he was on board. Wow. And so I think that was the third book that I ended up publishing. Uh, but it was one of the first ones that I began working with. Okay, wow. And yeah. how do you, I mean... How the hell do you publish a book? <laughs> I mean, and, and look, at the time I had no no idea. Sure. Um, and so my, what did you do? Uh, I leaned on my friend Thomas Keith, uh, who uh, is still a dear friend, and I met him through Make Magazine. He was a production manager, I believe, at New Directions Publishing, and he and I had met because I acquired from him or from New Directions. For Make Magazine, uh, first serial rights for a Tennessee Williams one-act play that had never been published before. Oh my god! And um, that was how he and I first connected. Because he actually also um, is a Tennessee Williams scholar, in addition to oh. his work uh, at the time at New Directions. Um, so Thomas and I kind of became friends through through that acquisition. And I think I visited New York once at the time and looked him up, and he gave me a tour of the New Directions offices, which was so cool and i was geeking out it was so exciting for me um and thomas and i became fast friends um and so he when i kind of had this idea he mentored me um and and helped guide me through on what i needed to do or the, the process to, by which to put a book together and so the first book was a collection of short fiction from it was like a short fiction anthology from different authors that's and right. um it was totally guided by thomas's support um, and, 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 and to be fair, I feel my way through it even to this day. I have a sure. general sense now of what needs to be done. Um, but there isn't really a, a book written for like renegade indie publishing. Sure. Right. That I know of. I shouldn't say that there, there may be something. Um, and, and, and another thing that, right. The reason why I did publishing, I, I also was considering opening up a bookstore. Mm. And uh, I actually, I read a book that scared me to death. I read a book called, uh, I think the title is How to Be a Rebel Bookseller. And I'm embarrassingly blanking on the author's name, but we can look him up. The author is Andrew Ladies, and it's actually called Rebel Bookseller, How to Improvise Your Own Indie Store and Beat Back the Chains. And he tells you how to start an independent bookstore in there. And I read it, and it's a fantastic book. And anyone who's interested in opening up a store should pay attention to it. Huh. Um, really, anyone interested in publishing should pay attention to it. But it's it's about a bookstore. But it scared the hell out of me. I was like, I don't want to be that. That business model is terrifying. <laughs> and then I kind of thought, I'd rather be the supplier to a bookstore than take that the financial risk that they have to take. So that's the, again the naiveness of like, well, I'll be in a better position on my end than theirs. And no, <laughs> it's all a mess. The whole fucking thing is a mess. Yeah, no matter what side you go on. But that scared me away in a good way. That scared me away from becoming a bookseller. So the first book that Gabriel managed to publish was a short story collection entitled A Brief History of Autho-Terrorism. It was this book that began a relationship that would kick off a decade-long journey to publish one of his most recent titles, a collection of never-before-read work by Terry Southern, entitled The Hipsters. When, when I was getting that book off the ground and thinking of authors to who could contribute uh, stories, I was reading a book at the time, just for pleasure, called The Candy Man. And it is written by Niall Southern, uh, and that's Terry Southern's son. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an awesome, awesome book. It's about how how they how candy came into being. Candy, of course, is the book uh, that made Terry Southern famous. Um, it, it was co-written by uh, it's Terry Southern and Mason Hoffenberg, and they co-wrote it and they put it out under a pseudonym Maxwell Kenton, and um, it was originally published in Paris by the notorious. Olympia Press, um, because it couldn't be published here at the time in the States. And that was the uh, late 50s, I think. 
the story is amazing. And it really, it's a book that, that not only is it a salacious read, even to this day, it's pretty down and dirty, but it's also hilarious and over the top and absolutely ludicrous as it was intended to be, you know? And, and that was the book that it not only was just a wild read, but it also, I think there were a lot of court challenges about censorship that came from that book. And it really, it, it's, it's an important book as far as uh, where publishing is today. Um, and I think, uh, or where publishing can be today, in, 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 at least in the States. Um, so it's, it's this really fascinating read about how that book came into being and what happened as a result of the book being published. And uh, I was reading it. And at the time I was like, oh shit, Terry Southern's son can write. Hmm. Um, I should ask him if, he's, if he wants to contribute a short story. So I reached out to him, uh, to Niall. And um, he's so cool. And he was immediately on board. He's like, yes, this sounds great. I'd love to. And that's when I learned more about Niall. And Niall has a very badass renegade approach to literature and art and um and and uh he's just part of collectives and he's a part of just these just a cool guy <laughs> like hmm. and uh taking and after his father apparently taking after his father and not only not only is he wildly enthusiastic about his father's legacy and his father's work which he is devoted to getting out in the world and making sure people remember and recognize um, but Niall himself is just a cool, fascinating, creative person and friend. Like he's just, he's someone to admire, especially as an artist, um, where he believes art is the thing and is more than anything. And I, and I mm. again, I almost feel though that that is insulting to him. He, he may, he may take that as a compliment and I mean it as a compliment, but that goes back to my my having an issue with someone calling something a passion project, right? Like it's somehow when, when we, when we go this route of saying someone is devoted to their art or someone is passionate about this thing they love to create, like we separate that from the need to earn income right. and the need to, and the right to earn income from this thing that you love and admire. And so I don't mean to sell him short when I speak about his um, admirable dedication to the arts um, it's, it's, he's someone I look up to. Um, but it, you know, it's not to sell him short or any of us short who, like you said, you just you want to, you know, besides the plethora of ideas you have daily that go all over the place, huh. you know, you, I mean, you are a songwriter, you are a musician. Um, and I also know you as an, as a writer. Uh, yeah. you know, I think back to when you and me and, and, uh, and Clayton, uh, if I could drop his name, yeah. um, you know, would, would, would meet in, in school after hours and, and have those poetry nights together. Oh man. Remember yeah. those? I do. Those were fearless, man. Like what, what, what we were slinging between and there was just four of us and, and there was no, there was nothing to be self, uh, oh, what's the word self conscious about, um, and we were doing weird things and we were putting out weird, challenging, I would argue, literature or poetry, whatever we want to call it. And somewhat performative, sometimes not. But um, it was a, just it's one of my fondest memories from yeah. from that time. Yeah. Um, and it was that we got to do that together and that we did do that together. You know, there are other, you know, did you know there are other countries and in other countries, um, <laughs> The government funds their publishers, funds their filmmakers. And I'm not talking about, you know, the, the pittance we get through the NEA, right. um, which gets less and less every year. And, you know, the people in charge of those funds do their best. But, like, it is just, I think, de rigueur. I think it's just par for the course. If I was in Canada, even, I could get funding hmm. for my publishing house. Wow. I can't do that here. And the only way that I can get funding here is if I go nonprofit. But I don't want to go nonprofit because that turns my company into a business that is trying to thrive just so I can keep the lights on by getting enough grants to pay the people who are applying for the grants and keeping it a business that's running smoothly. I just I don't buy the nonprofit model at all. I think it's bullshit. I would love to be in a culture and an environment where um, we aren't considered the, you know, the afterbirth mm. um, of, of what the great experiment is like. How about you just recognize that the arts of, on all levels 
should be as well-funded as any of these other business interests. And if you invest in them, you're going to get a return. Mm -hmm. But if you keep us, you know, believing in this utter bullshit of the starving artist, which is is insulting to everyone who's an artist, it should Mm -hmm. never be the case. It's it's absolutely insulting, especially, you know, I, I would argue America is one of the, this is an ignorant comment, but I think it's one of the worst places to be an artist. Now, I know that's ignorant because we also have so many freedoms, freedom of speech. We have the ability to express yeah. ourselves in ways that a lot of other cultures and, uh, and governments stifle. So I'm aware of how ignorant that comment actually is. Um, but there is some element of truth to what I'm saying there. And it's, it's outrageous. It's outrageous that, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm nearing 40 and I'm still holding down multiple day jobs or freelance work uh, in order to fund the thing that I truly do believe. Yeah, man. You know? I'm, I'm, I'm meanwhile, right people go you. on on a on a on a fucking TV show, on a game show, and with you know, here's another piece of plastic crap that that um, you know is just a little bit different mold of the other piece of plastic crap. Um, so you know, give me X amount of money, and you'll get a percentage. And and they do, and they do. And now we've got socks, and we've got <laughs> pooper scoopers, and you know, all these things that are arguably worthwhile in this world. But it's just amazing that, you know, now, especially in the U.S., like the pinnacle of achievement for an entrepreneur is a game show. If I could, and I'm, and I'm very serious here with Anti-Book Club, and, I, and I'm actively working on this, by the way. This isn't just like an idea that I think sounds cool. I've, I've been crunching whatever numbers I, I, I can to figure this out. My goal, you know, because I once naively believed this would be bought up and made bigger, and I now know 10 years in, of course it won't be. Um, so now it's like, well, how do I model this in a, in a dream? Mm. Well, the dream, I don't want to charge for these books. I want to no. give these away. I want to give these away. I don't care about the money. And I don't want to care about the money. Now, I don't want to do it at the cost of my authors not getting paid. Right. right? I don't want to do it at the cost of anyone who works for Anti-Book Club not getting paid. Of course, I want money to be involved because these people... Are, are, are sharing their expertise and their talents and their time, which is the most valuable thing. Mm. Um, and they, they deserve recompense. So when I say this, I, it's not some holistic, let's all live on a commune bullshit. No, I want to figure out a way, how can I give these books away and everyone still gets paid? There's also that rumor out there on the interwebs about, about you that you at least in years past, sold your personal libraries to pu- your own books in order to publish these books. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the rumors are true. Um, <laughs> there was, I mean, look, before, before I got into this end of things, my, my, my start in books, um, well, I guess my start in the publishing scene was working for Make in Chicago, but um, I also used to manage a rare bookstore in Chicago. So really, my, my education in books started with rare books, and I was a rare bookseller. Uh, it's a long, def- it's now defunct, but it was a pretty pretty cool store while it lasted. Um, what was it? What was it called? Printer's Row Fine and Rare Books. Um, and it was a pretty magical place. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I have some, had some incredible experiences there. And, and that, so I come from a rare books background. So many i have a decent collection it's not a large collection because i've never had enough money to make it what i wish it could be um and it's certainly like none of the books that i've had have you know been worth more than maybe in the low you know one to two thousand range right Mm -hmm. um not that i paid that but like i was aware of the value and i held on to them yeah um so yeah so i think it was about five years ago now that um i was at crossroads financially with anti-book club and I had the Terry Southern letters collection was coming out and I had to, I had, I had no more money and I needed to print galleys and galleys are like just crappier produced versions of the book that you send out to reviewers. Okay. To critics, just to kind of drum up awareness. Um, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I needed money. So, uh, and that's a low amount by the way, but, when you don't have money, a low amount, it doesn't matter if it's a low amount or a high amount, it's just not attainable. Right. Um, and so I did the only thing that made sense to me at the time. And it was, it was tough, but I, I, uh, yeah, I sold off my entire personal collection. 
to, wow. to get some fast cash. And, you know, when I went to, to fund anti-book club at the start, I also sold off, I sold off my, my movie collection and my record collection mm. at the time. So by the time I sold off my book collection, that was the last collection I had in my life. How did that feel to you? It was painful at first um, because I, I cared about the books. And, you know, when you're, when you are a collector, you know, maybe I can't speak for all collectors, but I think a majority of collectors like, yeah, part of it is the financial value of what you're holding on to. But another reason you hold on to these things is that you, you have, you value them as far as being in your life. Yeah. Uh, you, you become a steward of, of that particular copy of whatever that is. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not holding on to things as a collection for financial reasons, there's a reason it's on your bookshelf oh, yeah. and that you didn't just give it away um, or sell it. Um, and it's not always because it's financial. Maybe someone signed it to you that yeah. it has a person. And, and I don't mean a famous person or even the author of the book. Maybe it was just a gift from someone in your life yeah. um, that, that, that thought you would like the book and now you have that book in your life. So there are many you know, reasons we, we collect, but I do believe that um, for many collectors, um, you recognize that you are the person who's saying, okay, I'm responsible for this exact book right here. Hmm. And, and I'm, I'm the protector of this and it's, it's up to me. So, so part of that pain is, is relinquishing that responsibility. Mm. Now, uh, I didn't give up books that are personally assigned to me by people in my life. Like there are some books that weren't allowed to be given up, but many of the books that I have that have financial value weren't those kinds of books. You know, they, they were more from the collector's end of things. Mm. Um, so I look, I, I, I contacted a bookstore that's one of my favorite bookstores in New York and I love everything they have there. And I realized, oh, wow, what they sell is pretty much the way I, the books that I have. So I knew that if they were interested in my collection, it would be going to the right place, mm. a place that would value them and readers that go to their store that value those kinds of books. Yeah. So, you know, there was, I, I didn't just, just contact anybody. I, I, I was careful in who I reached out to. And, and sure enough, the owner of that store came over and, and you know, he didn't buy up everything. Um, he bought up the ones that he thought he could sell and that he was interested in, mm. but the ones he bought were enough to help me print the galleys for the Terry Southern letters collection. At the wow. time. Yeah. And, 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 and as to what, how that made me feel, it's my feelings have changed. I don't collect anything anymore. And I think part of that comes from the damage that I feel from mm. having given up my collections. Uh, it started with giving up my movie and record collection, um, which was tough, but the truth is, is I kind of, it was one of the more forward thinking things I did. I mean, st- audio streaming was just starting to happen. So, yeah. you know, I, I gave up my record collection and then I don't think uh, film streaming was happening yet. Netflix had just started maybe at the time or was just getting off the ground, but they were still just DVDs by mail. Yeah. And um, I didn't see that writing on the wall per se, but it turned out to be one of the, now my DVD collection, which at the time numbered in the hundreds, maybe, cl- you know, probably like six to 700 DVDs now are completely valueless. So I, I did get those. I sold those at the right time. Yeah. And I have no, I have no qualms about that, that loss. And, you know, yeah, on a record end of things, you know, it's, it's a bummer not to have those. I do believe in that analog romance there, but mm-hmm. I don't miss them because whatever, you know, I just, I can call up any song I want ever and, and press play. Right. We can go into the, the damaging economics of that and oh how wrong God. that is. But that's that's a and that, that certainly speaks to your world. Um, but it's all to say that like those ones I got over. Um, the book one was the toughest one for the reasons I've cited, I think. And but what that's done, all combined, it's kind of put me in a very philosophically Zen territory about how I acquire things in my life. Mm. And again, part of it's born of, of the pain of, of losing these things that I valued beyond money. And part of it is born of the, of the freedom of, of letting go of these things. And I now practice what I, you know, pretty much call catch and release with books. Um, I don't, I haven't stopped buying books. I still acquire books incessant, like relentlessly. Um, and you know, that, that's not going to change. And I, and I, and I buy new and I buy old and I, you know, used and I buy rare, but except for a select few, I catch and release, I, I, I buy them, I read them 
and I put them back out in the world. Whether that means I leave them in the laundry room or I mail them to a friend. I don't sell them though anymore. Hmm. I don't sell books anymore. I, 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 I do pay for them. I buy them. I keep them in my life as long as I want or feel they need to be. And then I give them away. How do you, and I realize that this might be different, must be somewhat different, uh, depending on each particular situation and author, but how do you acquire the, the works that you do? It really is, as you noted, it really has been dependent on each situation. Um, so I've, I've acquired books probably in every way possible. Um, for example, like just with the graphic novel, uh, with the end of the world that I already mentioned, you know, that was talking with a friend who's an artist who told me he had this thing and I took a look at it. And I was like, Oh my God, this should be a thing. So that was kind of how that came into being. Right. Um, but I've also acquired uh, novels or work through agents who have sent me, you know, manuscripts, um, uh, translators who send me their translations in progress. Mm. Um, re- me just reaching out to commission or to ask authors if they've, you know, got work to contribute. So it really is, it's been in all realms. I, I don't, I don't accept uh, open submissions um, anymore. I used to, but it, it, not because there isn't valuable work to be uh, gained from that, but because it, it's only me. So I just, I can't, I, I, there are still manuscripts that I accepted a couple of years ago that I haven't not accepted, but I accepted to read sure. um, a couple of years ago that I'm, I still haven't read. And that's not because I don't respect the person who shared their art with me. Um, but it's just because I'm doing multiple jobs just to make ends meet and still trying to make anti book move forward. So I had to, I had to cut out just a general open submissions process as part of my acquisitions. But, you know, I still, it's not to say that I don't still acquire them through general means like that, but primarily now it's through agents or through just writers that I know that I hope to work with or try to work with. And many of my books are years in the making, you know, they're not, I don't just acquire them and they immediately go out or they are translations. Like a book that I'm going to publish next year uh, was printed in Spanish, uh, um, you know, this past year. And I've got the English language edition for that that I acquired. So it just depends. It's truly through every mean possible. Yeah. Can you tell me about the diesel a little bit? Oh yeah. Um, so the diesel, which is by, uh, Tani El Sawadi and translated by William M. Hutchins into English. Um, uh, El Sawadi is, or was a, uh, Emirati author, a poet. Um, and this is the only book that he wrote. Um, and I, I, I corrected myself with the tense because yeah. just in the past year he died and he was only, I think 50 maybe or something like that. Like it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, so, and I, and I learned kind of just through someone posting it on a blog somewhere, like a translation blog that he had died, yeah. which is a real bummer. And I think the diesel is still like, I mean, I, it still is one of those books that just melts my mind every time I think about it. Um, at least, at the very least, we got this stunning work from him. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, it's one of the beautiful things about that an artist can leave behind is that, I mean, we all have to die, but like that work that we leave behind for others to discover, that hopefully lives on forever and, and allows those of us who created it to, to live on a bit longer too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's... It's a bittersweet thing, of course, as an artist. But um, yeah, that that one came about because I was from a relationship that that formed when I was working at Make Magazine in Chicago. Um, There's an author, an Iraqi author friend of mine uh, named Mahmoud Saeed. And Mahmoud is a tremendously prolific novelist. Um, And um, but we've got like two of his books translated into English over here. And um, he had submitted short stories to us at Make, and we loved them. 
Um, but the translations were pretty rough and uneven, I, you know, and he was hiring his own translators and some of them, some of them were well-meaning trend, like student translators, you know, who just may not have a great grasp yet on their craft. Um, some of them might've been a little more dubious and just taking advantage of, of, of someone who didn't know English very well. They were just uneven. And like, you could tell through the unevenness of these translations of these stories that this is an incredible author. And so I reached out, this was, um, at the time with Make and Michael Zapata was the, uh, is a a co-founder of Make and he was the fiction editor at the time, I believe as well. And he and I, and it was his, he, it was his relationship originally, his friendship with Mahmoud and I, I came into the fold and we're all just like lifelong buddies now. Um, but we, I, re, I was like, well, let me see if I can hire a translator for, Mac, for Mahmoud's work and that might help us get his book, his work in print. And I did, I reached out to this tremendous translator. His name is William M. Hutchins. And, um, and he's still actively translating and he's, I would argue, still one of the tops in his field of uh, um, Arabic to English translation. And um, we reached out to him and we're like, can we commission you to translate a couple of these stories for us so that we can get them in print in English? And he did. And he's such an incredible translator and, and, and he made Mahmoud's voice sing on the page. I mean, translators are so fucking awesome. And yeah. and they they are as much the success of of a novel as the original language author is. Um, and they should always be recognized as such. Um, and I can say that because I've seen enough uneven, what I would consider uneven translations that I can see the difference between, you know, what a strong translation is and, and what a not so strong translation is and what that can do for the power of the work for a reader. Yeah, that's interesting and something I've only just really started to to learn about. Um, yeah, well, you know, and we have a very, it's, you know, tra- books and translation are like, I, they're getting more and more regular here, but I think for a long time, the, the renowned percentage of books and translation was 3% in the U.S. Oh, wow. 3%? There's a big world out there. There's a lot of creative minds out there and only 3% of them are getting read in English. Like what's that? But that began my appreciation for translated work. And that began my relationship with William Hutchins. And he and I became kind of fast friends from there around that time, uh, or I guess around when I was getting this off the ground, he reached out to me, uh, anti-book club, getting that off the ground. Um, and he said, look, you know, can I send you a couple manuscripts, you know, mm-hmm. that I've got that I've already translated I was like, of course. I mean, one of the biggest barriers to translation is the cost of the translation itself, Hmm. um, which is one of the reasons it's not uh, so commercially, you know, as strong commercially is because uh, a publisher has to take a bigger financial risk um, with these. You're not just acquiring the rights to the book. You're then either acquiring the translation in addition or you're paying for that translation in addition. Right. Um, So it's just, it is a bigger investment. So, um, but... um, I think it's not uncommon for Arabic language authors uh, to pay for English translations themselves. Um, and that's, you know, so I, I think I, my, my understanding or my assumption is that Tani al uh hired William Hutchins to translate that book. So he had this translation uh, available and he sent it to me. And it, it, it utterly, um, it, it's it's so, so incredible. And in the edition that we published, that Anti-Book Club published, there is an essay by William M. Hutchins in the opening. Um, and, and, it's, and it roots it in like a sociopolitical, sociocultural context. Um, but when I read it, there was nothing contextualizing it. So I just read it for the pure poetry and art on the page that it is. And it, it did things to my brain that I, you know, very few other books have ever done. Um, and I knew I wanted to be its publisher. So that was kind of the birth of that. Definitely check out The Diesel. It's short and incredibly beautiful and surreal. And also now has an entry and essay in the Global Encyclopedia of LGBTQ Literature. So finally, we got back to Terry Southern and the hipsters. Terry Southern's son, Niall Southern, was supposed to get Gabriel a short story for Anti-Book Club's first publication, the short story anthology entitled A Brief History of Author Terrorism. You know, it was funny. He was he was super late on delivering his story, and I was getting nervous. 
um, because I was nearing when I had to send this thing to print and I wanted to include him, but he wasn't delivering. And, um, you know, he kept asking for more time, more time, more time. It's fine. Um, the last time though, that he asked for more time, he said, Hey, he goes, I do need, I need another couple of weeks. He goes, but I actually found this old story of my dad's that no one has ever seen. It was printed once in a magazine in Paris and was never printed again. And I think it really fits the theme of this collection. I'm wondering if you want to take a look at it. It's like, oh, <laughs> take all the time you want with your story. Um, send me that one. Yeah. So he did. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, good, a good way to buy yourself time. And it was this awesome story um, called Art Museum in Hamburg Blows Up um, that Terry Southern had written. And it very much did fit the theme of, of, of a brief history of autoterrorism, the, the short story collection. And um, so that kind of, so that, that book really began not only my friendship with Niall, um, but my relationship with the Terry Southern Literary Trust. From, the, uh, um, from that short story anthology, at least three full-fledged books came out of that. Because um, two books with the Terry Southern Trust, uh, one book with, um, oh, more than that, uh, one book with Andre Kudrescu, um, a book with Ben Greenman. Um, these are all contributors to the first collection. And, and, you know, we've maintained good relations, you know, since then or, or, or developed friendships from there. And, um, uh, and it's led to bigger books with Anti-Book Club, which is really fun. I could imagine that other publishers are, have to be somewhat envious of your connection with the Terry Southern Trust, unless people just don't care anymore. Damn good question. You know, in a fantasy world, I like to think they're envious of it. Um, and they should be, because there is a wealth of material there, and much of it is fantastic. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the, the next book that's coming out in the spring is, is this anthology of never-before-published work by Terry Southern called The Hipsters. And actually, it's available now, as it took me so long to get this interview out to you. So The Hipsters is now available on the Anti-Book Club website. Um, it's got short stories. It's got screenplay excerpts, um, uh, journal entries. Um, the majority of it's never been published. A couple of things uh, have been out of print for 50 years or so, you know, like, um, you know, the the... the and were only printed once in like a magazine or something. So uh, mo a majority of it's unpublished work or never before published. Um, wow. So that's what we've got coming out. And, but that's so that the page count is, you know, maybe a little over 200 pages. Um, but it was submitted to me. The manuscript was almost 900 pages. Oh my God. So this is nine years in the making with anti-book club and longer than that for Niall Southern. Niall, you know, has I think been working on having this work see the light of day for a lot longer than before I entered the picture. Wow. Um, and as to what other publishers have been doing and why they haven't picked up on it, I, I, I cannot say. And I feel that way, honestly, about any of my books, like these, these books all deserve the star treatment. I can't afford to bring on a book that I don't believe that about. Sure. So this isn't just me like trying to be a slick salesman. It's like, I, I can't, there is nothing in this for me right. financially. So <laughs> like, you know, it's something you believe in. Yeah. And I, and I wouldn't, you know, and I, I wouldn't put what I put into this not, and I don't just mean money. I mean all my time yeah. um, and, and, and life energy. Um, if, if I didn't truly believe that these books should be bestsellers and can be bestsellers. Um, and so, you know, and this is one of them. I think this is so exciting and it's, you know, especially for, Terry Southern fans, but I think the challenge we had coming from a 900 page manuscript, like Niall wanted essentially this massive tome that really was a true archive of Terry Southern as an artist and a, and a writer um, and, a, and a creator. Um, you know, I'm speaking for Niall there, but I think that's true. I think he really wanted this massive tome that could really account for everything. And at first I was on board. We were going to release this as a two volume edition. Mm. Um, and the more we worked into it and got in the nitty gritty, I realized that's a task for an academic publisher, uh, like a university press who can really just put out these two massive bricks, you know, and, and, you know, like the Mark Twain autobiography, right? Like this massive thing that like, it sounds cool, but like, who's really going to read all of that? Right. Um, kind of a thing. 
there is a place for that. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I hope that does still happen. There's enough material for that to still happen. Hmm. But as we got deeper and more years into it, I realized that there really needed to be more specificity with how I was able to sell this book hmm. and shape it. And I think we really, we finally hit on it. You know, it took a long time for us to come to realize, you know, to see this eye to eye. But in the end, what we've got here is, okay, let me rewind a little bit. I put out the Terry Southern Letters collection right. um, in 2015, I think. And it's an incredible collection. I wouldn't change a thing about it. And I would argue that it's kind of the autobiography he never really got to write because yeah. we it's in chronological order. It's from the very beginning as a young writer, as you know, before he's anybody, quote unquote. Um, and then up through quite literally, it ends on the day he dies. Mm, I, I never and, got I I acquired that, but I haven't gotten to even close to well, the end. Spoiler alert, Terry Southern dies eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it's really tremendous. Uh, and if you read, if you do choose to read it chronologically, you grow up with Terry Southern as a writer mm. and it's really cool. Um, but it's also like we designed it as you've got a copy of it. It's designed as like a coffee table book. Yeah. So you can also just flip open randomly and just be entertained by what you read. It's a really, it's a fun experience. But the thing I learned from this book is that I don't think as many people out there know who Terry Southern is as I wish they did. And I hit a core audience. He's got a rabid fan base, a cult fan base, certainly. And certainly in the film world, he's more known. Um, but he's been kind of forgotten unduly as the writer, the brilliant writer that he is, um, except outside of these more cultish circles. And it was a bit of a wake-up call. It was a bummer. That me, that was eye-opening, mm. was, was that kind of recognition that, oh, my God, I don't think this audience is as big as I thought it was or I hoped it was. And that's what started reshaping the massive tome into something a little more targeted. And when I say targeted, I mean, I finally realized like, no, 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 this has to, this can't be the kitchen sink. This actually needs to be kind of a primer, mm. a Terry Southern primer. Smart. So it, to me, I wanted to keep it slimmer um, and with a more of a range of the things he did. Uh, that anyone could read. So, meaning anyone, meaning if you're a ma if you're in the, the the fan base, the the rabid fan base of Terry Southern, it needs to be filled with things you've never seen or that you've only yeah. heard tell about. Um, and then, if you don't know ter who Terry Southern is, it needs to be accessible. Mm. You need to be able to read it without needing to know who he is. And uh, and that's what I think we finally hit on. So. You know, there are these journal entries that are in there that no one's ever seen before. There are these short stories that he wrote as a young writer that were in these one-off, you know, fiction magazines that, you know, some he wrote under pseudonyms. Uh, there is this, um, uh, the holy grail for Terry Southern fans. It's the, the, the namesake of the collection, The Hipsters, which is this, the first novel that he ended up abandoning. Oh, wow, um, yeah. But it's the, he only wrote, you know, I think like 40 pages. We've got all 40 of them here. Hmm. Um, he there's he, in a Paris review, um, art of the interview, um, that he did. Um, he mentions the hipsters and he says something like, you know, I've got like 300 pages written, I think is what it says in that interview. And I asked Niall, I was like, Niall, did you give me everything? Or is there like three, is there 240 more pages here that I, that I don't have? And I was like, yeah, I, because that's all he wrote. <laughs> that's all he has. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> But, you know, Terry was forever, you know, spinning, spinning tales um, yeah. to to uh, for, for both entertainment and as much to his detriment as well on a business end of things. Mm. Um, you know, he was his own worst enemy, too. But uh, but it's 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 awesome because those who are diehard fans, the hipsters is like the thing that no wow. one's ever seen. Wow. And it's really cool. And, and Niall and I had to work very hard on it to edit it because. He never got it published, and so it never went through a, a, a rigorous editing, editing process beyond himself as author. Um, so we really had to hone in, and it's really exciting. But then, and then there's also screenplay excerpts uh, again, which will satiate the diehard fan as much as any film student out there. I've got, you know, Terry had he had rights to A Clockwork Orange before Kubrick, so we've got nice. a selection from his adaptation of that. Mm. We've got the the never the never before seen. Um, sequel to Easy Rider, 
Um, oh, wow. you know, we've, it's just, it's, and these are just excerpts of these. Sure. Um, um, but they just kind of wet the whistle enough. And so I think what we came out with in the end, even though in the beginning we felt we were just going to be all encompassing in the end, we've got this narrow, uh, uh, it's designed like a vintage paperback. Like you can just slip this in your back pocket kind of a thing. Mm. Um, and it, again, I wanted to do that cause I wanted it to be low priced. So that it was point of entry for anybody who may not be familiar with them. Um, and I wanted it to be non uh, what's the word? Uh, overwhelming. I didn't want it to be overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted it to be accessible, but exciting. So I think anyone who is curious, uh, this is actually a new and great starting point for someone who has no idea who he is, as much as it is a thrill for those who have read everything. Already. And, and the other thing that I think is cool and we worked really hard on is that it's, if you follow it from page one to the end, you you actually grow up with Terry Southern as an author. Like you you see him grow as a writer. You see his mind change on what matters to him as an author. Mm. Um, and you know there's a section in there I called intermezzo, and that's where we put in the essay from Playboy from I think 1965, where he denounces novels and and says that film is the only medium that matters for storytelling. And it's tremendous. And then and then that's when we then we segue into the screenplay excerpts at that point. Um, so, so it's, you know, it's very pointedly designed, this book, um, and, and it, and it, it allows you, it takes you from him to, oh, that was one of my kittens who's stuck in a plastic bag right now. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Zazie, come on. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think, I think, you know, so it's really cool cause it's a, it's, you get to see not only the growth of Terry Southern, but just the growth of an artist mm. who, just you know, I think I think I imagine you can you can speak to this, and I think I can too. Like we we our view or our understanding or our belief in what art is or what uh, um, what we're putting out in the world and what we deem as art um, certainly changes as we grow and we, we become more exposed to other forms and other artists and other you know I don't know like I, I I've gone through a lot of different transformations. In, in how I see or think of art. And I think it's cool that even outside of the name that is Terry Southern, you're just seeing the, the growth of an artist, uh, the, you know, the evolution of an artist um, to his, you know, from, from beginning to end as well. Without it being like thrown in your face the way I'm doing it right now. No, I like the way you're throwing it in my face. Regular People is a production of Once Upon a Westler. This episode was produced, engineered, and edited by me, Calvin Marty, and I also composed and performed the music. If you know someone who'd appreciate today's talk, please share it in whatever way you like. You can find a bit more information about Gabriel and Anti Book Club on our website, irregularpeople.show. And of course, more great stuff from Gabriel in part two of The Degenerates. 